It's the criminal code of the underworld and a sacred vow of silence. But what happens when a criminal turns witness against his own? MCD presents Omerta, a live show with me, Nicola Talent, in association with Crime World on April 27th in the Olympia Theatre Dublin. Tickets on sale now at ticketmaster.ie. We heard for the first time in an Irish court about Daniel Kinahan personally being involved in shooting anybody. We heard today that Jonathan Dowdle said he was told that Daniel Kinahan personally shot uh, Patrick Jr. in the leg in the punishment shooting. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Jonathan Dowdall finally stepped into the witness box on the 30th day of the Regency Hotel trial where Gerard the Monk Hutch stands accused of murder. Today I'm talking with Niall Donald about the heavy security presence around the courts, about the beginning of the state witnesses' evidence and about the crowds who have come to look on. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. looking very shook. He does and certainly I'm not in a position to judge but his hair is significantly greyer than when he was last pictured sometime and I suppose the last pictures of him really were around 2016 when he when he was a, a still a or just about to leave Sinn Féin and he looked significantly younger so it was a, it was he looked stressed Nobody could blame him for that. I'm sure it's very stressful, but he, he carried it on his face. He looked sort of grey, I thought, his pallor. Now, he got a little bit better as he got going, I would say, maybe a little bit more confident, but his voice is very quiet. It's quite difficult to hear him. Um, and, yeah, he looks like it's the last place in the world he wants to be. Yeah, um, like he keeps he keeps his eyes down. He's almost directly facing uh, Jerry Hutch. Now there's a load of barristers in between, but they're 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 kind of face on, really. Um, so, but he he kept his eyes down and and wasn't making eye contact. Jerry Hutch kind of looks quite smiley a lot of the time in the witness box. He didn't look agitated or anything like that. But yeah, it was it was a very tense moment and a very strange opening actually. And uh, mm. um, there was uh, just before he 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 came into the witness box. Um, the prosecution made the court aware that his Jonathan Dowdle's solicitor had written a letter um, describing what 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 was described ultimately as sort of preconditions before he 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 was to appear as a witness. I mean, those preconditions weren't given were given short strift by the by the by the judges who said he's just a witness, and that that is the difference. Jonathan Dowdle isn't uh, he doesn't have a, a senior counsel representing him in court. He's just a witness for the state, same as any of the the dozens of people that are going to be called. So he doesn't get a special barrister appointed to him. Um, but the letter appeared to, from what we could make out, I mean, just as Tara Burns said, it was uh, you know not the jurisdiction or the place of the court that it was for the governor of the prison. So. Got got the impression it was to do with his maybe his current conditions in the prison that he was because she sort of kicked it back to or told Sean Galan that it just wasn't for the court and it was to it was really a matter for the governor of the prison. Yeah, I mean, she she basically said he's just a witness, the same as any other witness, and and you know 
obviously didn't engage with what was in the letter. The letter wasn't read out, but it was a copy was handed to the judges who who read it to themselves and it it just proceeded as if it never happened to some extent. Yeah, it did. But Brendan Grehan did make a suggestion that the him giving evidence was in question, but it did pass over. It was very strange. So just before he came in, actually, sorry, he was called in then immediately after they had kind of dealt with that letter because, of course, the D superintendent who were calling D superintendent X from the witness protection was brought in to tell him to his face, basically, that, um, you know, his his entry to the witness protection program wasn't going to rely on how he performed in the box or what evidence he gave. So that uh, superintendent was brought in uh, swore in evidence and just answered a few simple questions about it. Uh, Bre- Brendan Grehan did ask her was the um, sort of was the blueprint essentially for these things a UN document and she eventually agreed that it was and it was to do with that it's like for like essentially if people are put on the witness protection program they get the salary that they well, they get the salary. They they're helped sort yeah, of attain. It's basically about that that their lifestyle that they have in Ireland. If they go to another country, they get an equivalent lifestyle. And he was making the point: you don't get more, you don't get a great like you don't get paid basically a, a you know a, a million quid to 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 go abroad, and it has to be like for like. So the detective superintendent gave very brief evidence. As she was giving evidence, the, the media were allowed to stay and obviously the, the guards and the legal representatives, but all the members of the public were asked to leave almost straight away. And of course, they were kind of, it was they were stressed out because when you got there, very in, which is very rare, there was a huge crowd and it's a small courtroom and people were really, really anxious to get in. And there was like a, a sort of a scrum almost to get in, which is totally, I haven't seen... Um, that many onlookers, probably since Joe O'Reilly. Mm. Um, not that I'm in court every day, but there was. So they were all, people were all tense and they were queuing up like like when you're trying to get on a plane and you try and get into the line before other people and all of that. So that people, some people had got in and then they were almost instantly kicked out for a while. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, she, her evidence was really, really brief. Um, and then... I thought it was kind of, is he going to appear now with these letters of preconditions? But then he, Jonathan Dowdle appeared um, subsequently. Um, and Little observation I made. Now, I have to just put before this that I did put some eye cream on my eyes last night to sort of get rid of these wrinkles. And it sort of irritated my eyes. So even my, my eyesight is even worse than it usually is. I feel like I've got sun cream in my eye. You know, when that happens, okay. But anyway, when he got up and he was handed the Bible or he picked up the Bible, it looked like he was this tiny little person and the Bible was giant. Yeah, he, like he's not hes not a tall guy actually. And of course, that's always deceptive with people you see photographs of a lot. Um, but he, he was, like he looks like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders and he probably certainly does. Um, he just looked tiny standing there and I'd say it was probably the way he was holding himself and the way he was feeling and all the rest of it. Anyway, he his evidence got underway and it started gently as evidence usually does. Um, Sean Galan asked him to tell us about himself, his date of birth and, you know, what his sort of status is. So he... His date of birth, I didn't get. Did you get it? The 31st of the 5th, 1978. And he was basically asked about how he knew Jerry Hutch and, and Patsy Hutch. I mean, that was the kind of opening mm. statement, you know. 
Um, so he said he was married with four children. He was from originally from the north inner city, the Ballybock area, to be precise. He said that he, growing up, he had one brother, one sister, and the father and mother in the house. That the mother was friendly with Jared Hutch's wife, Patricia, and that he said like that his grandmother had a kind of a stall, and that the Hutches all worked for her. Yeah, I mean that's that was that was the basic connection, um, and then he there was. Not, I wouldn't say contradictory, wouldn't be, but he sort of he was basically asked, "Did he know Jerry Hutch well?" And he sort of said, "I didn't know him." Um, and then he sort of maybe sort of corrected that and said, "Well, I did know him as a te- I, I would have been a teenager when I had met him." And then he described um, becoming a businessman in, involved in an, an electrician running an electrician company and saying that he also had contact with Jerry because he sponsored a number of boxing clubs. Uh, where Jerry was also involved, so that 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 was the other connection. But he clearly had a a much stronger link with Patsy Hutch, who really featured quite heavily in the evidence today. Yeah, he said he knew Patsy very well, and that basically Gary. He mentioned first of all that Gary had worked on his mother's stall, which was just off Henry Street, that she sold clothes, and then. Derek, he said, had also worked on the stall and Patrick Jr. And Patrick Jr., he said, was the one who probably worked the most. He said that Patsy, when he had set up his electrician's business, that Patsy sort of came to him and said, look, I don't want Patrick Jr. to get into trouble. Will you take him on as an apprentice? So he said he took him on and um, that he was kind of somebody who wasn't that interested in the work. Well, he, he, well ultimately, he said he he, he took uh, Patrick Jr. on as then as an uh, an apprentice electrician. And he said Patrick Jr. worked really, really well with him for about a year. Um, But then he stopped being interested and he didn't finish his college courses as an electrician. And obviously Spain, he said he he subsequently went to Spain and that was, um, he was sort of said then that was the last sort of contact he had or certainly regular contact with any of the uh, Patsy Hutch's sons. But he clearly stayed in regular contact with Patsy himself. Now, he said that he handled a little bit of this business, this tricky business of the money between them. He said that he, in the early days of his business, he sometimes ran into cash flow problems. And because older people were getting their electrics done and they took a long time to pay him. And he said that if he was stuck to pay the wages at the end of a week, he'd sort of turn to Patsy. But that's all really he said. Now, we did hear a bit more about that in the opening where they had this sort of peculiar relationship that he borrowed cash from Patsy and then paid him back in holidays, hotel rooms and other things that he purchased on his credit cards. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, there was a few issues that he raised. I mean, these are being pre-raised, I suppose, by the prosecution, uh, probably in the knowledge that he's going to be questioned about these things in particular by the defence. So he said in the early days of his business, and he suggested it was maybe three times or something that Patsy gave him five grand to cover wages, and he gave an explanation about how older people were getting grants for electrical work, but they wouldn't get the money then, and he he would fall short. And then he also directly addressed another couple of issues where he said that Patsy uh, had a a truck that was clearly just for use by Patsy, and that he registered it in his business, as his business truck, and um, he paid the insurance, etc., and so, and then he also said he gave work to Patsy, uh, carpeting, carpet fitting work, and Patsy gave him a bit of work. So all of this is 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 him 
acknowledging these ties through his business. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, you know, I don't know the legality of registering a, a truck that in your business name that's for use of somebody else. I presume it's not it's not kosher. Um, nor is it kosher to to you know to to take money and things like that. Um, so that's that's gonna be a feature, um, I would imagine. Obviously, he's clearly laid out his stall that there was never any problem with this, and this is just this is just something that happened. I mean, certainly registering the the van in your wrongly, it's not going to be a you're not going to go to prison for life or something like that. But it's obviously there is there is issues there. So all of these ties where Patsy is not just a, a, a family friend, he sort of tied in with the business. They were all addressed from Jonathan Dowdle's perspective, at least. Um, so that that was the, the initial ties. Now, they quickly moved his evidence on to Gary Hutch and about the sort of the situation really around Gary Hutch's murder in Spain in September of 2015. He said that he was told uh, that the Kinnahans believed that Gary Hutch was an informer and that they were blaming Gary on things that were going on in Spain. Um, he said he had no contact with Gary himself, Dowdall, but he was told these things. He repeated that a few times that he was told these things. He said that uh, Patrick had, since Patrick had, Patrick Jr. had gone to Spain, he'd had no contact with him. He didn't know anything he said about the Kinnahans, but he was just told there were problems with them. Uh, then he said that uh, Patrick Jr., Patrick Hutch Jr. had he was told again that Patrick Hutch Jr. had tried to shoot Daniel Kinahan in Spain. This is obviously referring to like a very infamous incident that you, you could arguably mark as the very beginning of the feud, um, where uh, Daniel Kinahan owned, owned a, a villa in in near Porto Benus, and that one night in 2015, um, uh. There was a number of people there, including a boxing trainer called Jamie Moore, who subsequently wrote about being shot in, in his autobiography. And a man uh, came in and shot Jamie Moore. The, the, the narrative is that he thought it was Daniel Kinahan. And we're here there today, and it's obviously been flagged up well in advance that, that Jonathan Dowdle at least says he was told that that was Patrick Jr. who, who, who was attempting to shoot Daniel Kinahan. So this could, this you know, there's many different people mark the feud from where it starts, but this is certainly one of the incidents that really does mark it, you know? Most definitely. And he goes on to tell a story of what he was told that certainly was something that was floating around Dublin for a long time. I mean, it wasn't news to me what he said. I've heard it a lot of times. Um, he, he says that in September of 2015, when Gary was killed, he was told that he was killed by the Kinnahans. He said that the Hutch family, Patsy Hutch's family, had been demanded. They had There was a demand of 200,000 by the Kinnahans to sort of, I suppose, forgive Patrick Jr. for this attempted yeah, shooting think, of Daniel. I think the word there was compensation was the term used. Um, so this has been floating around. But then they got into, uh, you know... Uh, he, of course, said the compensation was for the boxer. Yes, which, you know, we've never heard. Uh, certainly wasn't in Jamie Moore's autobiography. So he was told, he says, uh, Jonathan Dowdle said in court, I was told that Gary was being held more or less as a hostage in Spain, um, which was, you know, until this, this payment and this punishment was shooting, uh, was carried out. And um, then he had made a, a kind of an extraordinary comment uh, 
we, we heard for the first time in an Irish court about Daniel Kinahan personally being involved in shooting anybody. We've obviously heard him being, he's all involved in ordering of murders, but we heard that today that Jonathan Dowdle said he was told that Daniel Kinahan personally shot uh, Patrick Jr. in the leg in the punishment shooting. And he also said that uh, Patrick Jr. was brought to the Matter Hospital in the aftermath of this by a family member. Now, I mean, the idea that somebody has to be handed up to be shot is, I mean, look, we're working in this gig a long time and, you know, we've heard everything. I have always found that deeply shocking. Yeah, it's deeply shocking. But I actually spoke to our uh, Jerry Miller, our, our who works for the North, who, who you did a podcast with recently. And there was one... Uh, when I started being more involved in the copy in the north, there was came in one Saturday, a guy, uh, he got shot by appointment. And I was like, geez, that's an incredible story. And he was like, ah, oh, no, no, that happens all the time up here. Like being shot by appointment is relatively regular um, as part of the paramilitary punishment. So you get kneecapped, as they call it, but it's not actually generally not being actually shot in the kneecap, it's being shot in, in some the muscle and tissue around close to the knee and it's non-fatal, but it's painful and, and you do recover. So that 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 is what was alleged today in court that Patrick Jr. was shot by appointment. He was brought by uh, a Hutch family member. Um, Daniel Kinnan appeared, it was claimed, and shot him in the leg. Incredible. Incredible stuff. The 200,000 that Dowdall has told the court that was paid to the Kinahan organisation as part of this compensation package didn't appear to have been enough. And he said that he was told more demands were being firmly placed on the family in the aftermath of that. Now, of course, that is, again, something that has been well, um, you know, written about. And we have definitely, you know... Yeah, we've heard that, that story before, of course... This is all addressed, as, again, from a, a Kinahan perspective in the book Blood Feud, where there was loads of disputes about these, about the money being paid over and not paying o- being paid over. But certainly, that was a huge part of, of, of what was going on at that point. And obviously, the Hutches at that point seemed to think that this could bring it to an end, but that didn't happen. And obviously, Gary Hutch was shot then uh, shortly after. Now, he moved on then to Gary Hutch's shooting, and he said that... Uh, he, we've earlier been told in the court, by the way, that he travelled to Spain with Patsy Hutch to identify Gary's body. Now, he hasn't said anything in relation to that, but what he has said is that um, when Gary was shot, Patsy was distraught, and he asked him, Dowdall says, to approach people um, in an attempt to kind of alleviate the situation. Yeah. He says that Patsy survived some sort of a shooting incident or maybe he wasn't shot at, but he believed an attempt was made on him when he was outside a school to collect a young child. And that he says Patsy asked him, could he get help uh, to stop the feud kind of emerging? That was around the January time. So he said in January and February, he basically tried to speak to people uh, about yeah. that. But he said at one point that he didn't know anybody, didn't he? Well, it was it was interesting. He was asked what people, and he just said Republican people. And then he he made it was a very unusual because he's constantly called uh, referred to the provos in the tapes, but he 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 wanted to make it clear. Um, he said, "I have to clear something up that it wasn't the provisional IRA; it was dissident people." It, so I mean, he obviously, <laughs> you know, his short like. Which is actually what we thought as well, that it was just a catch-all term, the provost. Obviously, other people have said that that 
there was certainly in some of the coverage in the North and on social media, there was an implication that that implied the provisional IRA were were the actual army council of the old provisional IRA. But he wanted to say that that wasn't the case. It was just kind of regular dissident types. As if he's not in enough trouble as it is with everybody. Like, you know, he keeps getting himself into more and more. Anyway, I found it peculiar. He said he didn't know anyone, uh, but that he seemed to have been able to set up to meet oh, himself and his father, sorry, in January 2016, travelled to Straban to meet a person um, he's referring to. And he says, this is the man called We, who's come up in the in the um, the trial before, unidentified still. Yeah, I mean, I think that's extraordinary. Um, you know, that, that, you know, that this guy, We, I think he says his first name is Paul. I mean, you know, this is a murder trial and there doesn't seem to be a very clear attempt to say this is who he met. Um, you know, obviously this, they're, they're, this person is, by all descriptions, a, a key dissident figure. I mean, people know who have a good idea who it is, but it hasn't obviously been put to him to identify a picture or anything of those nature. So we're still going by nicknames, we, um, you know, and so that that's the case. Uh, I don't know if that'll become an issue under cross-examination, but at the moment we're just hearing people's nicknames, we and Fluff. Shane Rowan, obviously, he, he met as well. He is being referred to by his full name. Shane Rowan, obviously, subsequently was served time for weapons offences connected with the, the, the guns that are believed to have been used in the Regency. So he's being named, but this other guy isn't. That was Fish, he's calling him, Shane Rowan. Sorry, Fish. Sorry, sorry, yeah. apologies. Yeah. Not Fluff. No, that's... Another person, yeah. We'll have to find someone to call Fluff. Yeah, no, I think there is a Fluff, actually. It's another dissident figure, but we're not... Yeah, we're not there yet. Right, so anyway, he said that um, he went up with his father and they went to Lifford, he thinks, to the sis- wee sister's house. Um, they told them that there was threats to the family, the Hutch family, and sort of asked them, I think could they do anything, create an agreement to stop these threats? Um, He mentions a guy called Kevin Tyrone who was there and he said he thinks his second name was O'Neill. The first time in January they went to Donegal and then there seems to have been, I think, was there another trip to Straban? Because he speaks about going again to Straban on the 4th of February. He's called up there and himself and his father travel up and he says they met we again up there. Yeah, and so during this um, during this trip, at one point, um, he describes how Patsy, or he claims Patsy had had called to the house and asked Trish to book a room in the Regency Hotel. Yeah, he 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 said the night before, so the, that would be the third of of yeah. February. Uh, Patsy, he said, called to the house and asked for his father to book a room at the Regency Hotel. But I think the father wasn't there and Trish had kind of taken the wet message, his wife, and they never kind of basically passed on, she never kind of passed on the message. Interestingly, he says there was nothing unusual in that, that <clears throat> he regularly booked holidays and stuff like that in his credit card for Patsy. That was just the way it was. So that's also a, you know, we would have done that, he would have been done that a lot, he said, over the years. Um, obviously, 
So they, they're in this car on the way back from Straban on the 4th and Patsy seems to ring and says, did you get the hotel room booked? And he says, no, no, we forgot. So he said they went home and they, you know, he said actually, sorry, his wife Trish made a phone call and booked the room, but they needed a photo ID. So he drove the father home. The, da- the dad got his passport and they then made their way up to the hotel after six o'clock. He drove, the father went in and got the room key and he came back out. They showed him some CCTV footage of them in the car, basically outside the hotel doing that. And he said they basically were headed for Champions Avenue for Patsy's house with the key when they got another phone call. Yeah, and so this has got to be a really key bit of evidence on on behalf of the state um, that they have flagged up in advance. But he said he he was instead told to meet, to go to Richmond Road, and to meet uh, somebody at at uh, a petrol station there, it's about halfway down. I know it well. And he expected, I think, Patsy to appear, but instead, Gerard Hutch came. Um, he said his father gave him the key. Gerard Hutch approached on the passenger side of the door. Um, he didn't. There was no chicha. He just handed it over, and that was that. So that's going to be a key bit in terms of connecting it, from of the state's case to to, to connect. Gerard Hutch to, to to that room key that was ultimately used by a man called Flatcap, Kevin Murray. Now, on the 5th of February in 2016, the day of the Regency attack, he said he had an office in the Black Horse Avenue and he was working from there. Um, he was pricing work, he said. Sounded like he was having a fairly mundane day and the next thing he heard about the Regency hotel attack on the radio, he said. Um so they asked him then, Sean Galan, senior counsel, asked him what had sort of developed over the following few days. So he, um, the first thing he says was the Sunday World story. Yeah, we got like we got a good name check there a couple of times, but it's obviously the the, the picture of of two men leaving the Regency Hotel is what he's referring to. The Regency Hotel attack happened on Friday. The Sunday World was published with that image with the two pictures. Uh, two faces pixelated, one of them flat cap Kevin Murray and the other a man in drag. So that obviously was on in the paper on Sunday and he he's, he refers to seeing that um, and then he subsequently um, got a call to meet uh, Gerard Hutch. Um, they went, he said, in shortly after that and met in a park in Whitehall. He describes it as a, a, a small kind of park you know, there's a kind of a, a walk, a walking track more than anything. And he said at this point he met Gerard Hutch and he was very upset. He was agitated. He said he was he hadn't seen him like that before. And um, he wasn't happy about then he, you know, this is a bit and there got a bit of reaction in the court from some of um uh David Byrne's family. Um not, you know, they were just that he said that Jerry was Gerard Hutch was not happy about the shooting of Mr. David Byrne. And then we got to what is going to be the key bit of the the state's evidence again. He said that, well, Gerard Hutch told him it was them that did it, basically. He said as well, did he see the paper? Did he see the picture? Yeah. And he sort of basically said that that Hutch said to him that was young Patrick in drag and that uh, Dowdall said he recognised him as well. Um, he said, I think, that Hutch was in a panic uh, about the picture. And he said that, um, with the note I have here, he said, that was them at the hotel. And then he sort of said, them and him. Yeah, so that, exactly. He said, that was them at the hotel, obviously referring to the the, the Hutch organisation. And then he said, 
him. He, he, he corrected himself, brought the word him as in referring to Jared Hutch. And then he also described as um, the shooting of David Byrne to have been carried out by him and Mago Gately, um, who's, who's not been charged with any offence, but he was named in court for the first time there. And James Mago Gately has been a repeated target for the Kinahan organisation. They have tr- attempted to shoot him on a number of occasions, at one point sending an international hitman, Imre Arrakis, into Ireland uh, in order to shoot him in a house he was living in up in Newry. And then months later, uh, Caelan Smith shot him out at a garage in North County, Dublin. He was hospitalised but survived it and Caelan Smith is serving 20 years in prison in relation to that uh, attempted murder. So... Um, yeah, so at this point, he said, Jonathan Dowdle said, Jared Hutch knew that during this meeting the, the, the shit was going to hit the fan. Another curse word there, but forgive me. And um, then he was he also described Jerry Hutch as being very paranoid. He said there was a guy walking walking in the park and he he Jared, Jared Hutch thought it could be a cop. And so there was a lot of pressure. And basically, Jerry Hutch asked him to 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 contact the Republican people again. And um, he's, he was pouring cold water on it to Jared Hutch, he said, basically saying they would be interested now that there was, that this shooting had happened, the Regency. Um, and that was, so that, that was that meeting. That was the extent of that. So he then said in the meantime, and so that was the Monday morning after the Regency Hotel that he claimed that meeting happened in, in the park. He then said in the meantime, Neddy Hutch got shot, which of course happened that evening. Um, he said that he had, he was at home that evening and Kay, being Patsy Hutch's wife, rang. And Kay asked him, had he, had she seen or heard from Patsy? Yeah. And she said, no, she, uh, he said, no, he hadn't. And she told him then that Neddy had been killed. Yeah, so he, so at that point, um, he was, he said he was eventually uh, contacted a few days later um, by these, by some of these Republican contacts you know, he was told at that point who Flatcap was, and their, he said their focus was they wanted him to find out how come Kevin Murray had become involved, how why was he there? They didn't seem to know anything about it. Um, he says describing Kevin Murray's uh, that had been involved in dissident groups, but that he wasn't involved with them. Who he clarified he was talking about the new IRA, and if after a falling out for a few years beforehand, and he was being put under pressure to find out how Flat Kappa got involved. And he said that didn't look good for him with his Republican contacts. Um, and uh, so... Sorry, the contacts he said he didn't have at the beginning of his evidence, because he said he didn't know anybody. Yes, well, maybe he, he would say, well, I know them now after a couple of meetings. I don't know. But he, he was obviously concerned that, you know... He, he seemed to suggest that these people thought the wool was being pulled over their eyes. Um, but they, you know, it's interesting like that that that, Kev, that Kevin Murray contact, you know, at least according to John Dowdle, wasn't coming from the same source. So we move it then to the 20th of February. And at this point, he is brought up to another meeting. He's asked by we to bring Jared Hutch up to meet with Kevin Tyrone who he earlier said he thought his second name was O'Neill. Uh, so he they went, he said, first of all, he was a bit confused at this point. He said, first of all, they went to the airport in Antrim. And then that is actually where the international airport is in Antrim, Belfast International. Um, and he said they went and spoke to Jared's friend there. Mm. And then they 
met with we and Shane, he called him, in Donegal. Um, he said they brought them in a car to Straban, where Kevin Tyrone was, and they spoke to him. Now, we have heard evidence in relation to that, and there was CCTV footage shown to the court, sorry, surveillance pictures of Hutch and uh, Dowdall, who he identified as himself and Hutch, at this property in Donegal and where they're getting into somebody else's car to go to this meeting. Yeah, so then at the meeting, he said um, he, himself and we, they had a bit of a preliminary chat and then they left the room and Jared Hutch spoke to this guy, Kevin. Um, he he did, uh, started off, they laid out kind of a bit of a background of the feud. He said they were alone for about 20 minutes and that they're... That was it, really, for that meeting. As far as he was, he was concerned, and um, that the, he said at the it ended. There was phone numbers exchanged between Jared and we, and then he dropped uh, Jared to Newry, which you know, to a shopping centre in Newry, which again we saw CCTV footage um, of of Jerry being dropped there, and then we saw Jonathan Dowdle returning alone to to Navan Road where he was living. Yeah, and then he moved on in his evidence to the 7th of March, which is the other key. This is the, 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 the recording. Recorded, is yeah. It? Yeah. So he said that, um, and he didn't give very much evidence in relation to this before lunch because I think he was kind of getting tired or the, the Justice Tara Burns was getting a little bit concerned about him that he was, she wanted to make sure he had water and all the rest of it. So look, we'll leave it at that. Thanks very much, Nicola. All right. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. <laughs>